Once while teaching in Turkey, I got into a wonderful conversation with a highly educated uh, Turkish man. We talked of many things, but one comment of his really stood out, really stood out to me. He said to me, what is wrong with your country is a lack of self-control. He said, America was once a great nation, but now it's out of control. I agreed. I totally agreed with him. Didn't disagree in the least. In fact, I'd like to remind you of what our lack of self-control has brought to the world's leading society. Selfish demands, laziness, bailouts, opioid addiction crisis, divorce, teen pregnancy, poverty, obesity, waste. And, and I'm, this isn't just some academic exercise for a Washington think tank. Every single life in here, every life here has been negatively affected by, self, by lack of self-control. Lack of self-control in ourselves and in others. It has negatively affected every one of us. Now, after I agreed with him and, and elaborated on his comment, the Turk and I embarked on a wide-ranging discussion. We were comparing different ways that human beings have tried to learn self-control through the centuries. And uh, our discussion's headlined in your notes. I, I summarized it for you in your notes. If you'll uh, look in your bulletin on the left-hand side, you'll see how humans typically try to produce self-control. Three main ideas for producing self-control throughout human societies. The first and most popular by far is legalism. Legalism is slightly different in its eastern and its western forms, but the core idea is universal. Legalism believes that people can be commanded to obey by means of decree. Okay? Legalism assumes no unintended consequences of any law. If we just pass a law or raise the punishment on an existing law, then people will learn to control themselves in response to that law. That's legalism. It's tempting because it so often works. You do realize that rules are necessary. No society of any size can exist without them. That's why we made you read that horrible book, Lord of the Flies, in school, right? <clears throat> but... Listen carefully. This is huge. Legalism also fails miserably every time. Even as it succeeds, it fails. You see, the problem isn't with the laws per se. It's rather with the flawed humanity to whom such laws must be applied. This is all recounted for us in Paul's letter to the Romans. Listen, Romans chapter 7. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 7. Well then, says Paul, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was, it was the law... They showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, the sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came into my life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's commands for its own evil purposes. God is telling us that even when legalism works, even when it works, it fails. Because good laws only spur on sin in fallen humanity. You would have never thought of swimming there if there weren't a sign that said, danger, no swimming. <laughs> legalism. Much less popular but still seen throughout history is the second way people try to control people, and that's mysticism. Uh, mysticism is a fake spirituality. 
mysticism is fake spirituality where the human is actually in charge. The human does things to put him or herself in charge of the gods or God or force or whatever. If a person does certain things, he or she will receive mystical powers. Obviously, this was a major part of, of most pagan religions. You can see it in many places in the Bible. Uh, for example, Elijah's confrontation with the priests of Baal up on, up on Mount Carmel. What did the Baal priests do? They, they cut themselves. They danced ecstatically. And don't be deceived. It was a very carefully planned out dance because by doing all these things, by following the formula, they could receive power from their demonic god. This tradition continues to this day. You see it in Eastern religions that call on a person to take certain drugs or empty their mind so that they can gain power. You see the same thing in Western practices that are to get power like Santeria or horoscopes. It's the same thing. The problem with mysticism isn't the mysticalness. It's not the unseen mystery, nor is power inherently bad. You realize power is not inherently evil. The problem is that it's anthropocentric. Mysticism is all about the human being. Third way that we try to control ourselves in our environment is indulgence. <laughs> indulgence has two expressions. That's for you, Andy. That's why that's there. His all-time favorite movie. Indulgence has two expressions, okay? Expression number one is to change the rules to line up with a person's desire. Expression number two is overindulging something to produce a distaste in the person. Um, expression number one has been amazingly popular in Western societies ever since World War II. Uh, permissive parenting in the 1950s, spurred on by Dr. Benjamin Spock's ubiquitous parenting book, it led not only to a lack of self-control, but, but to a cultural feeling, and this we start seeing very much in the 1950s, a cultural feeling that every person is entitled to whatever he or she wants. This tied in with the growing postmodernism in the 1960s and 70s, which said there are no absolute truths, uh, no absolute standards anyway. You, you do realize the idea that there is no absolute truth is so hilariously flawed, it is an impossible concept that nonetheless is believed by millions of people. The upshot is that by the time we get to the 21st century, most children are parented like Jeffrey. My family met Jeffrey at Legoland Windsor when we were there while I was working on my doctorate. Jeffrey and his mother, for some horrible reason, known only to God in his sense of humor, Jeffrey and his mother were everywhere we went that day. <laughs> Jeffrey's mother gave very clear instruction. She gave clear instruction all the time, which Jeffrey disobeyed every single time. His mom could not have been less effective if she had been made out of Legos. Actually, I think a plastic mom would have been better because when Jeffrey would rebel, the human mom just changed the idea of right and wrong to fit whatever Jeff's choices were. So we heard this all day long, over and over. No, don't cut in cue, Jeffrey. Uh, that, that's cutting, Jeffrey. Oh, well, a, a little won't hurt. That's a good boy, Jeffrey. Good boy. Jeffrey, what a good boy. This went on and on until finally one of my boys grabbed my shirt and pulled on it, and I leaned over, and sotto voce, he said, Daddy, Jeffrey is not a good boy. The second expression of indulgence is overindulging in order to produce a distaste for something. Uh, Bill Watterson gave the classic example way back, 1986. Uh, he wrote this cartoon. Calvin and Hobbes are there looking at the cigarettes. Hobbes says, look, you have to be 18 to buy cigarettes. 18? By then I'll know better. <laughs> Calvin says, Mom, can I have a cigarette? Sure, Calvin. I think your grandfather left some here. Just smoke outside, okay? Wow. Your mom lets you have a cigarette? For a mom, sometimes she's pretty cool. <laughs> You'd think this would be an easy habit to break. <clears throat> ah, gas pack. Well, now, did we learn a little lesson today? Gasp, yes. Trusting parents can be hazardous to your health. <laughs> That's genius. Indulgence 
mysticism, legalism. Now, now listen, none of those are all bad, yet all of those are insufficient. All of those are insufficient. Titus chapter 2 shows us a better way, a reformed life of self-control. Open your Bible to Titus chapter 2, if you would. In, in this letter to the apostolic legate Titus, the Apostle Paul has, has previously, if you were here with us, he's previously walked us through a fairly thorough discussion of false teachers, okay? Now in chapter 2, he addresses what makes Christianity different and, quite frankly, what makes it much more effective than those three major world ideas. Let's read Titus chapter 2. Uh, start in verse 6. We'll read through the end of the chapter. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. He's already discussed the older men, the older women, and the younger women. Now he turns to the young men, although, of course, these truths apply to all of us. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching, Titus. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed, having nothing bad to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Say these things and encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Self-control is explained here in a very practical way. We develop as people through biblical self-control. And biblical self-control comes from love of Jesus empowered by God's Holy Spirit. This is the astounding idea in verse 14. Look at it. We love him because he first gave himself for us. We control ourselves and do good works because he is engaged with us. He is cleansing us, making us his people. This is very, very different from the false teaching. False teaching is legalistically and mystically concerned with technique or indulgently absent of obedience at all. Real self-control is more than technique, and it does require obedience. That's why Jesus' upper room discourse includes these statements. Take a look. Jesus is speaking to the disciples last night before his crucifixion. To all of us, he says this. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Did you catch that? If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Notice the first statement. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. When we love the Lord and Savior of our souls, we obey. This is the first aspect of self-control. Please do not read it in reverse. This is not a formula that can run each way. We don't obey and then learn to love. It is love for God because of the ever-abundant love from God that leads to obedience. Legalism reduces this to technique. Legalism sees human beings as machines that spit out coded formulae. In reality, we learn self-control because we're in love. Everything begins with a love affair with God. For example, think about how a relationship with a human sweetheart changes a person's conduct. You act differently when you love someone. You, you act differently with that beloved and, and with other people as well. You control yourself because you're always conscious to do what is best for that one that you love. Perfect illustration of this, perfect illustration of this occurred in Gladewater, Texas in 1956. Probably the biggest moment in Gladewater in the 20th century, a, a guy named Elvis Presley went there to perform. 
and there was a young guitar player who was asked to warm up the crowd for Elvis. Okay, before the show began, this warm-up guy was backstage, and he was just picking around on his guitar, and suddenly a song idea just, just burst into his head. Later, he said this about it. He said, I was newly married at the time, and I suppose I was laying out my pledge of devotion. I wrote as fast as I could, and that song took only 20 minutes to complete. The young guitar picker's name was Johnny Cash, and the song is I Walk the Line. It is a perfect picture of verse 14, of John 14 as well. Listen, listen to how love leads to self-control. Look at the lyrics and listen. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds. Because you're mine, I walk the line. Greatness. I know, you want to hear it all, but we don't have time. I'll I'll play it for you later. All right. Love leads to obedience. It leads to self-control. Now, notice the next statement by Jesus. Next statement. uh, I will ask the Father who will give you another counselor who will be with you forever. He's the spirit of truth. The world's unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. This idea of obedience leads the Lord straight into a discussion of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit indwells and seals believers in Jesus. He guides us in truth. He's our counselor. Thus... Our obedience, our our self-control in our lives, it begins with love and it ends with the Holy Spirit. It is a love affair that is empowered by God's Holy Spirit. A buddy of mine recently wrote me about this and he said, Wayne, my victories over the idolatry of food are proof that self-control comes only by God's Spirit. This is a friend of mine who really likes food, really, really likes coffee. Um, It is not my own power of my flesh that gains me self-control. However much I love and appreciate Jesus, I cannot obey him in my own power. Self-control can only come by virtue of my reliance on God's Spirit. I must let the Almighty counsel me. But this is a particular problem in our age. You see, today we've got a whole lot of people, lovely people, but they make the Holy Spirit into some kind of mystical genie. Um, they believe that he will give them power. He will do just what they want if they only act in exactly the right formula and way. In fact, they even pretend that the Spirit gives new revelation that is inconsistent with the Bible. That is the nonsense of mysticism. It will never, it will never lead to real self-control. Now, at the other extreme are Christians who act as if there's not really a Spirit at all. You see, they reduce self-control to a precise legalistic humanistic formula where application of Scripture, how God empowers us to live, it's totally and completely anthropocentric. Uh, Robert Ingram recently wrote a scathing indictment of this kind of legalistic attempts at obedience and self-control when we go to the Scripture. Look what Ingram said. He said, we're prone to understand the application of Scripture to life in mechanical terms where passages are applied as fixers for broken and sinful aspects of life. When we do that, the Bible becomes objectified. It's treated as merely a resource for enhancing life in a fallen world. Notice the big problem. The big problem is both of these modern church movements reduce self-control to self. They reduce it to self, and that's tragic. And by the way, I think that explains the very poor obedience I see today among Christians. Biblical self-control comes from love of Jesus, empowered by God's Holy Spirit, not our flesh, not some pretend spirit we make up outside of Scripture. Our, listen, our control can utilize aspects of legalism and mysticism, even indulgence, although that's rare and somewhat dangerous. But it's all controlled by and submitted to God in a dynamic love relationship. All God's people said? Now, then... 
when we obey in love and by the Spirit, then our human relationships display our self-discipline. Self-control fleshes itself out in external relationships where, where the Christian's demeanor and discourse, decisions, deeds are obviously different. This brings glory to God. It brings glory to his word. Read 6 and 7 again. Look at verses 6 and 7. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. The, the Christian's demeanor, look, right side of our notes, we say up there on the top of them, the Christian's demeanor is to be exemplary. The critical term is parakaleo. Parakaleo is what our English Bibles translate encourage or urge. This is a word for training alongside someone. By the way, it uses the exact same root, para, the same root that God uses for the Holy Spirit, paraclete. That is not to suggest that we become somebody else's Holy Spirit. We don't take his place. What it says is, as God's Spirit walks alongside people, so we train alongside human beings as well. Throughout the New Testament, this term is used to introduce uh, admonition, exhortation, encouragement. Look what he's doing. Describing how the young men in Titus should act, Paul's detailing something that is caught, not proscribed, caught. It's an inside-out thing. That's why you learn so much more from a human being than you do a textbook. Textbooks are wonderful. They're great. But, but more full transformation occurs when a life is exemplifying the lesson for another life. This is why it is so important to be a good parent. Parents teach demeanor. They teach self-control. Not just by what they say, that's important, but by how they act when they say, come run with me. William McGurn uh, wrote a great Father's Day column. He said this, Most dads accept that part of the job is a willingness to, to be the unfashionable one. That is to love enough to speak and show unpopular truths when the world cheats your children with 50 shades of gray. For all the complaints about toxic masculinity, genuine masculinity seems hard to come by. Surely the greater male dysfunction of our time is perpetual adolescence and a culture that encourages the man-child. Close quote. Of course, per perpetual adolescence is not a new phenomenon. That's why Paul tells Titus and all of us to parakaleo, to encourage the younger people to train with us, to join us in self-control. Now, as Mr. McGurn indicated, life isn't only action. What you say also matters. The Christian's discourse matters, and it is to be disarming. Into verse 7, look at it. In your teaching, your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed, having nothing bad to say about us. Christians are to speak in such a way that our opponents have nothing bad to say about us. Now, look at that. It doesn't promise they won't say anything negative. You do realize it doesn't promise they won't say bad things. It just says that what they say will have no substance. Their retorts and their accusations will be shameful. There are two reasons for this. First, the passage makes it clear that our reasoning, our reasoning must be sound. Beyond reproach is the Greek akatag anostos. Uh, akatag anostos is a very specific term, kind of a rare term. It means clear understanding, an, an argument that is so healthy, so clear that the truth can be understood. This is more than just perceiving. This, this means laying out logical truth that can be verified. That's how we're meant to communicate, with sound reason. Now, second thing, in other passages, the Bible tells us the second way we shame our opponents, by being gentle. Proverbs 15, verse 1. Read it with me responsively, please. You take the underlined text. Proverbs 15, 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The very words of God. So consider our self-control in terms of words. When some atheist attacks you hilariously reversing logic and saying that your belief system takes faith while, while his is based on evidence, how should we respond? Reasonably and gently. 
We don't fight fire with fire. That just gets everybody burned. We live self-controlled lives because of love of Jesus, love for Jesus, and the guidance of God's Spirit. This is lived out in exemplary behavior and in disarming discourse. Also, the Christian's employment is to be faithful. Verse 9, slaves are to be submissive to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. My son recently wrote a great paper for his business ethics class. It applies here. Listen to what Ben writes. Um, He wrote for his course, In the pagan mind, the concept of work as worship is radical in the extreme. Work to the ancients was something bound to the earth. The gods were beyond work. By the way, the gods were never providers in pagan thinking, ever. It was humans who had to provide. Okay, Ben goes on. Um, The gods were beyond work, and they required the labor of humans and the subsequent sacrifices so the gods could be free to do no work. Thus, to pagans, work was a necessary evil for survival, not a means of enjoying the Lord. Of course, this pagan formula has not disappeared in our time. One of the most popular satiric songs of workers today is I-O, I-O. So it's off to work, I go. It becomes then very important for each Christian employee to take thoughts captive and intentionally commit their labor as a thanks offering to the God who provides, instead of seeing it as a punishment from capricious gods. He goes on. Another particular problem with work on a fallen planet involves the struggle against human authority. The lament from the era of Judges is never far from any given era of history. And here he quotes Judges 17. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever he wanted. In our day, this is often called an entitlement mentality. According to some, it is rampant among my generation, says my son. In reality, Mark Washington points out the truth. And here he quotes Mark Washington. as a guy who writes about work a lot. He says, millennials are eager to impact the world and are ripe for partnership and mentoring. The problem for millennials and others is they don't understand God's calling to submit to earthly leaders. The Apostle Paul is unequivocal in his instruction. And here he doesn't quote Titus, but he quotes the parallel passage, exact parallel to what we're studying, Ephesians chapter 6. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. And Ben concludes, certainly Roman slavery was not the same as the institutional racial slavery of later epochs that denied humanity. Without endorsing evil, Paul shows that clear lines of authority must be followed, not because of human power, but because of service to the true sovereign. Working for a boss is a calling from God. Amen? The key idea is adorns the teaching of God. You see that in your text? Isn't that a beautiful phrase? We illustrate God's words through our work. This is literally illustrated by those beautiful medieval manuscripts Just as those scribes, our forefathers, made gorgeous pictures that brought God's words to life, so we are to adorn the word word by living in such a way that the Bible comes to life through our lives. As we pointed out earlier in Titus, orthodoxy, right thinking, should lead to orthopraxy, right right living. If If we don't see that, if we see maladoxy, which leads to malpractice, then adjustments are needed. And that takes us to our final idea, that Christians' activities are to be concerned with eternity. Go back to verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and and live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. 
He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Say these things and encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Three big ideas here. Number one, Christians are other-centered. Christians are other-centered because God cares for every single person. Every person we influence is loved by God. I don't know if you know this. That is very, very different from Greek thought. In Greek thought, the self is always the center of the universe. Not so Christianity. Christians are other-focused. Two, Christians are eternally focused. They, They know that the here and now matters for the there and then. Look at verse 13. This is not describing a wimpy modern concept of hope. Oh, I hope. No, this this is the assurance of what is certain even if I don't see it. One time I was teaching at a conference and and we studied this passage. We studied studied verses 11 through 15 of Titus 2. And later, right after that, during the the singing time, the worship time of music, uh, we sang this uh, verse. There's a day that's drawing near. When this darkness breaks to light and the shadows disappear and my faith shall be my eyes. With Titus 2 ringing in their heads still, the whole group just stood up and started applauding the Lord. I still have chills just thinking about it. It was, it was incredibly moving. It's also incredibly moving when you and I live with eternity in mind. Let me brag on you for just a minute. A number of you do this really well. In fact, I want to I share with you just, these, these are very recent. I want to share with you just a few notes that I have received just lately. These are, these are either comments people made to me or letters. Most of them are letters they wrote me. Wayne, I chose not to yell at that umpire, though I wanted to badly. He was wrong. But my witness as a coach lasts longer than any game. Wayne, I stopped buying shoes. I have more than enough, and that embarrassingly large budget is going to the church's future instead. Eternity in their hearts. Look at this one. I blushed when I realized that my house is overrun with my craft stuff. Nothing wrong with my hobbies, but they've obviously taken over. I decided not to take that higher pay massive travel time job. My kids need mentoring more than money. Wayne, I'm learning not to fear, even in politics, Jesus will come and he will set all right without my worry. Amen. Now, most of those things, look, look at those things. Most of them are not intrinsically bad. In fact, some of them are good. But in every case, that Christian's behavior was influenced by more important eternal factors. Isn't that cool? So you tell me, if you were to write me, what would you, what would you add to that list? Think about it. What activities of yours need a strong dose of eternity? final issue in this section is that Christians really don't care. Third thing, they don't really care what people think when those people disagree with God, right? Say these things, encourage, rebuke all authority, let no one disregard you. Christians don't really care what other people think when those people disagree with God. Christians are eternally focused. They know the here and now matters for eternity, and Christians are other-centered because God cares for every single person that we influence. Now, in closing, let's go back to my discussion with that man in Turkey, in Istanbul. When he brought up self-control, he said, America was this great nation. So I steered the chat to this question. Why has America been great? What's made America great? He thought about it. And he first tried to claim that America must be great because of all the great natural resources in North America. But I, but I disproved that by showing that many, many other countries through the centuries have had far greater resources, and, and he agreed with that. He then said, well, maybe it's that America's location has offered her protection from invaders. But in the end, we actually agreed that, that Turkey is actually even more blessed with more defensible natural borders. 
In the end, he said, I don't know. I don't know what's made America great. So I changed the question. I said this. I said, listen, how could a few pilgrims who just came to North America seeking freedom, how could they have established a foundation that became the strongest country in human history? He said, I don't know. I said, I think I might. Let me show you. And I introduced him to Oz Guinness's Golden Triangle of Freedom. Okay? Now, Oz didn't make any of this up. It's from the Bible, and it was all taught by our forefathers, but I think he made a really nice summary of it. The triangle observes this. It observes that virtue requires freedom, and freedom requires faith. And faith, uh, I'm, yeah, virtue requires freedom, freedom requires faith, faith requires virtue. All right, or did I do that backwards? I did do it backwards, didn't I? Sorry, other way around. You can't be virtuous if you don't have freedom. That's it. Uh, if you want to read more about it, Oz Guinness wrote a great book about it called A Free People's Suicide. Um, I think a better discussion of it is in this brand new book. This one just came out this last year, Eric Metaxas's book, If You Can Keep It. Highly recommend the book. Because the founders of America had faith in Jesus, they chose to live virtuously. As Titus 2 instructs, they lived the way Titus 2 says. That virtue allowed them to form a very limited form of government. You do realize that was a completely new idea on the world stage when they did that. A very limited government. Why could they do a limited government? Because the people of the country didn't need to be held in check by some strong legalistic government. Their faith led to virtue, which led to freedom. George Washington spoke to this in his farewell address when he left the presidency. I want to read you a great summary written by Jonathan Satchel of our pulpit team. Jonathan wrote me this. He said, Wayne, as Washington is voluntarily laying down his claim to the presidency, an unprecedented display of self-control in light of historical power figures... Washington stresses the foundational importance of virtue to our nation, and he quotes Washington's address. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Close quote. Do, do you get what Washington's saying? It's the golden triangle. If you're, if you're going to have uh, political prosperity, freedom, then you've got to have religion, faith, and you've got to have virtue, morality. Jonathan goes on. He says, further, in an almost prophetic warning, Washington muses, can it be that providence has not connected the permanent felicity of a nation with its virtue? And, of course, Washington was being rhetorical. The obvious answer is it cannot. 200 years after those first pilgrims landed in America, 40 years after Washington's speech, another visitor, a French visitor, came to America named Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, he asked the same question that I asked my Turkish friend. He said, what is it that makes America great? This was his conclusion from his book, Democracy in America. Listen and look. I do not question that the great austerity of manners that is observable in the United States arises in the first instance from religious faith. I sought for the key to the greatness and genius of America in her harbors, in her fertile fields and boundless forest, in her rich mines and vast world commerce, in her public school system and institutions of learning. I sought for it in her democratic Congress and her matchless constitution. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. The safeguard of morality is religion and morality is the best security of law as well as the surest pledge of freedom. Without scriptural faith, there, there is no lasting absolute virtue upon which to build. Without virtue, especially the virtue of self-control, Titus 2, 
Without virtue and self-control, you can't have freedom. You know, the Turk to whom I was speaking desperately wants to reform his country. After we spoke, he, he said to me, this kind of self-control, this is new to me, and it makes sense. And then he said, I need to go back and rethink Christianity. I told him the same was true for lots of people in America. We want to reform our country as well, and it must begin with God reforming us, ourselves, beginning with our self-control. So let, let's commit to self-control that is continually reformed by God, not merely rooted in one of the worldly schools of thought. Pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray, I pray for myself, and I pray for my brothers and sisters too. There is an, there is an abysmal lack of self-control uh, in us and in our world. Lord, we pray that you will change that, you will reform us from the inside out, that because of love and because of the Holy Spirit, we become people of exemplary, marvelous, healthy, life-giving self-control, not because of laws or mysticism or indulgence, but because of real health in you. Oh, Lord, I beg you for this. We need it. And Father, when we're we're praying to you about lack of self-control, we're not talking about non-Christians. We're talking about us, church-going people. We need you. And by the way, Lord, thinking of non-Christians, I pray that if there's anyone studying with me who is not a believer in Christ, that they will respond to you right now. Friend, listen. Jesus is God the provider. He's not some pagan thing that doesn't care about you. He loves you so much that Jesus, God the Son, came to this earth and he died on the cross for you so that if you would believe in him, you could be made right. This isn't just about how we live now, sanctified self-control. This is about being justified, being right before God. And that only happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Please trust him right now so that your sins can be paid by Jesus and you can follow him who conquered death in a resurrection life. Trust Jesus as your Savior. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, please raise your hand. If you're here in the auditorium, good for you. Amen. If you are elsewhere, please write us. We want to pray for you. Father, I pray for all these believers, new and old, that we will never lose sight of our incredible love affair with you because you loved us first and that we will rely on your spirit. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.